Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. If you missed today's show, we talked about the John Gameshi trial and the question of how much protection there should be for women who get on the stand and testify in these kinds of sexual assault cases. And then Rob asked the question, should we have cameras in Canadian uh, courtrooms? And I told him no. <laughs> you can listen to us. It's true. Uh, you can listen, listen to King Gate and Breckenridge uh, Monday to Friday mornings, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Two guys who advise you not to buy the giant teddy bear. We're not going to harp on this, but I'm just, it's Valentine's Day. I really, you know, given what we're about to talk about, I guess reference to, to teddy bears is... Is a little, a little strange. That's a little why. uncomfortable, but uh, no, we were talking about it yesterday. We keep seeing it on CNN. This teddy bear company that really, really wants you to buy a four-foot enormous teddy bear for your your wife or girlfriend for for Valentine's Day. Oh, she's gonna love that, guys. I know a lot of good people probably work for that company. A lot of people work hard stitching those bears together, but please don't, please don't buy one. <laughs> <laughs> as aroused as these women seem to be, yeah, the sight of this this enormous bear. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's a bad idea. I don't always buy the best, most thoughtful presents. I get it. I'm not necessarily an authority on the matter, but I'm going to say that that's a bad idea. I think the bear is just beneath, like, iron, like a, like a clothes iron, <laughs> or like a can opener. Well, I got a tweet from a woman earlier who yeah. said, by the way, don't buy your wife a Fitbit either. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, honey, I thought you could use this often, like, <laughs> starting now. So... Uh, okay, is that? Uh, All right. You know, we're going to open the phones at 11:30 this morning, and if you beg to differ on our opinion on the gigantic teddy bear, we would love to hear from you. And you know what? I'm actually going to put that out there, ladies. If we're wrong, please, by all means, call us and tell us. Uh, but we are going to talk about the Gian Gomeshi trial right now, and it's interesting because we're into day two, and there are a lot of people commenting that the cross examination, the defense's examination of the complainant who's on the stand is difficult to bear. It's tough to watch. Because think about this for just a second. And and remove, please, the fact that this is a sexual assault trial, okay? That, that Gian Gameshi is charged with multiple counts of sexual assault and uh, uh, overcoming choking. Is that what the charge is? I don't know. Overcoming resistance, resistance by choking? By choking. like that, yeah. So remove that for a second. Say it was a murder trial. Say it was uh, a bank robbery. Really anything. Would you want the defense, would you expect the defense to be anything but thorough and tough? Should the defense in a criminal trial be considerate of the feelings of the person that he or she is cross-examining? And the answer is probably no. If we're trying to get at the truth, then we should use sharp and blunt instruments to get to the truth, should we not? Well, you know, there, there's a real concern about whether sexual assault victims are willing to come forward. And, you know, one of the things that might discourage them is the, the idea of uh, sitting in a courtroom in front of a bunch of people and having your story picked apart. I think the fact that police believe the allegation, the Crown believes the allegation, they believe in the allegation, they're prepared to take it to court, that's a strong sign of support. But it's been a rough couple of days for the prosecution in the John Gameshi trial because his, his high-priced, slick lawyer is certainly doing a good job in pointing to many of the inconsistencies in the versions of events from, from these women. Much time has passed since this particular complainant uh, alleges that the incident occurred. This is uh, Alicia, uh, Alicia Hasham, 
uh, who's uh, following the trial, and she's tweeting about it. And she was tre- tweeting this cross-examination about uh, that Gomeshi's uh, lawyer is putting on here. And let me just read some of this to you, because this is what the cross sounds like. Now, now, she's paraphrasing, but it appears that she's quoting as accurately as she can to tell the story. Alicia Hashem is. Uh, the lawyer, uh, Heenan, is that how you say her name, by the way, Heenan? I'm not sure. We were trying to figure that out earlier. I'm going to go with Heenan for now, okay? She says, quote, you told the Crown to see him on TV, to hear him on the radio. You had to relive the violence over and over. And you wrote an email that you don't recall sending. Heenan says, this was so traumatic for you, you could not bear to see him on TV or radio. That's your reaction to the trauma. The complainant looks apprehensive at this point. Heenan says, uh, uh, that's how you, you managed not reporting it to the police. For 13 years, you just avoided hearing him on the radio, seeing him on TV. You said this under oath. You know better than anybody how you feel. This must be true. But then you drafted an email in anger during Q, Jean Gomeshi's show. Do you now want to tell his honor and this court the truth? Goes on and explains that that the complainant sent an email with the subject line Playboy about a year after the alleged incidents, reminding the complainant that Gomeshi's voice and image re-traumatized her. But in this email said, good to see you, your show is still great. And then went on to say, to, to pass on, if you want to keep in touch, this is my email, my phone number, my name. So the lawyer then presses, Heenan presses the complainant, are you prepared to admit that you have lied under oath? Are you now prepared to admit the obvious? The complainant says, that email was bait, bait to get him to call me, to explain why he violently punched me in the head. So it is re-traumatizing for this complainant. Well, sure it is. Now, you know, it's possible that a woman can be raped and she might still phone that person next week, right? These kinds of things don't disprove the the allegation. And and so that's part of the concern. I mean, there have been suggestions in the past that maybe we need to uh, treat sexual assault cases differently or lower the, the burden of proof, as uh, has, has even been suggested. Joining us for some further thoughts is uh, Jonathan Rosenthal. He's a criminal defense uh, attorney based uh, in Toronto. Jonathan, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. You're very welcome. It's oh. Hennon, by the way. Hennon, thank you. Hennon, okay. There we go. I'm sure she's quite well known in your circles. <laughs> we'll take your, your authority on that. Uh, now, I know courts have, have dealt with, with issues around sexual assault before, and there have been, there have been cases in, involving, for example, the, you know, the sexual history of, of accusers and this sort of thing. So have the courts laid down some parameters in this, in this area? Absolutely. There's some great safeguards to protect the uh, rights of alleged victims in sexual assault cases. Uh, it's not like they are relentlessly and needlessly attacked. Their privacy interests are protected, and there are a great number of rules what they can and cannot be cross-examined on. Uh, this is not the case to in any way suggest this is one of those cases where a victim is being uh, re-victimized by the process. Mr. Gameshi is not charged with raping this woman. The allegations are that he had punched her in the head and it became a sexual assault because it was in the context of some kissing and things along those lines. So this is not that type of case at all. Um, and I don't think it should be confused as that. As you said, every criminal case, the burden is on the Crown to prove the charge beyond a reasonable doubt. And most criminal cases come down to issues of credibility, whether uh, the Crown can satisfy the judge beyond a reasonable doubt doubt that the version put forward by the alleged complainant is true. And so this is nothing unusual compared to any other criminal offense, be it a sexual assault, 
be it a murder. And there's nothing unusual about this particular case and the way this case is being prosecuted and defended other than there is a quote-unquote celebrity uh, issue in the case. And Jonathan, can you help us understand a bit of the uh, the criminal counsel strategy then? I don't think there's any ill will here that you're trying to completely discredit the witness, but you are, I would imagine, trying to find uh, plausibility of doubt in the evidence. Well, you're trying to show, in this case, I believe it will be uh, Ms. Hennon's submission at the end of the day, you simply can't believe this woman about what she says happened between her and Mr. Gomeshi because of all of the things that she said that are untrue. And what lawyers do to uh, cross-examine witnesses effectively is they want to impeach their credibility, impeach their evidence. So, uh, you know, if someone is telling the truth about an event, they will always tell the exact same story. That's the truth. That's what happened. In this particular case, from the cross-examination, what has become very clear uh, in regards to at least this witness is that she has said and written a number of things on different occasions, which is different what she swore to, in court today, for example, uh, in some of her Facebook postings, in some of her social media, in some of her police interviews, in some of what she said to Kevin Donovan from the Toronto Star. It was just inconsistent with what she said in court. Uh, so that is one of kind of the uh, basic techniques of any lawyer, be it a criminal lawyer, be a civil lawyer, any lawyer, be it the Crown attorney when they cross-examine an accused person. If they give multiple versions of the events that can be categorically proven to be untrue, uh, the argument at the end of the day is how can you be satisfied to that very high standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt when they said all these things that are wrong, untrue? So it can be that they're a poor historian. It can be that they're an outright liar. And in this particular case, from what has been seen in court, the alleged victim made a great number of statements. She wrote a great number of uh, emails, for example, to Mr. Gomeshi, which are inconsistent with what she said in court. So at the end of the day, the argument would be you can't rely on what she said to be satisfied beyond a uh, reasonable doubt. I think some people look at the, the burden of proof and, and the presumption of innocence and imply from that that if we're assuming or presuming that the accused is is innocent, we're therefore presuming that the accuser is lying, and that's a, a bad spot to put a, a woman in. Well, no, I, I don't think there's a presumption at all that someone who makes an accusation is lying at all. The presumption of innocence is a hallmark of any free and democratic society, that before someone is going to be branded a criminal, that the court, the judge or the jury must be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not beyond any doubt. It's not beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's a reasonable doubt. And again, if you, you look at this case, and I know that people are outraged, and I've read some of the tweets too. If you're looking at this case, based on the, the evidence that has come forward, that I've read about. I obviously wasn't there. This doesn't appear to be a case of reasonable doubt. This be, appears to be a case of some of the things she just said are demonstrably false or demonstrably untrue. For example, she said that uh, the assault took place in, in the Volkswagen Beetle. Well, it turns out that's demonstrably false because, in fact, he didn't own the, the, the Beetle at that point in time. So, again, whether that's that she's lying about that, whether she's mistaken, this isn't a case where it, 
it appears so far, at least with this alleged victim, that this is reasonable doubt. This certainly appears to be way, way beyond reasonable doubt, because it's not just what you had said, for example, sometimes people don't complain or some people contact the the alleged offender. In this particular case, she made those denials. She said, you know, I was so disgusted by this man, I couldn't even watch him on TV. I couldn't hear his voice. I couldn't see his voice. And what becomes very troubling, obviously, to her story is that that's just false because we know that she sent this email to him after watching him on TV. So it's not just that it's false. It's that she swears things that took place didn't take place. And if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, well, yeah, it, certainly. I mean, the email that she sends uh, says things like uh, great show, you know, the show's still good. This stuff. So right. she's she basically so, implying that she would have to watch the show uh, to well, make well, that. She, I think that's a lot more than implying. It's, I think it's an admission that she did watch sure. the show, which means when she swore that she couldn't hear his voice or see his face, um, it's just not true. So, you know, as Miss Hennon suggested to, to her in cross-examination, you know, you, you swore to tell the truth and you haven't. And that, as I say, that is something that uh, takes place in every single courtroom throughout uh anywhere we have an, an adversarial system. So there's, there's really nothing unusual about this case. And this is a case that I think is just, it's just been blown out of entire proportion because of who the accused is. And, you know, people have said, well, you know, at the end of this case, if he's acquitted, we've got to reconsider how we prosecute uh, sexual assault. There's no merit to that position. Or if he's found guilty, uh, he's been convicted in the, the court of public opinion. And that's simply untrue. This is like any other case where you've got a very experienced judge who at the end of the day, if he's satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Gomeshi has committed any of these offenses or all of these offenses, will find him guilty. If he's not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt at the end of the day, he will find him not guilty, which is what judges do every single day in court. Okay. I mean, the point I'm making is I can't prove that just because she wrote the show looks great, that she, in fact, hey, believes the show looks great or, or, or watched the show to find out. I mean, if she, she explains it as being bait, and I think that uh, uh, the judge in this case, it doesn't matter what I think or what anyone else thinks, the judge in this case will take that for what it's worth. And I think we can see where this is going. My question, though, is why would the Crown have this person as part of the case? Like, is there an obligation on the Crown to bring this charge to court, even if they can't gather enough evidence or even if this particular complainant story is so uh, uh, impeachable? Well, I think you have to realize there's no uh, defense obligation to disclose what they have in their file. So the Crown very likely would not have been aware of these um troubling issues as far as what, what, what was in the file, so to speak. So they wouldn't know that. The Crown Attorney's obligation is to prosecute a case upon which they believe they have a reasonable prospect of conviction. So it's not the Crown Attorney's job to determine guilt or innocence. Uh, it is their job to reassess the prospects of conviction as evidence comes out. So I, I can assure you that Mr. Callahan, who is also a very experienced Crown Attorney, uh, will be obligated to reassess the possible, the reasonable prospect of conviction based on what the evidence was in court. But he wouldn't have no, had that information. He wouldn't have had that stuff. Um, the police don't go out routinely and, for example, uh, obtain the complainant's emails. Uh, she made a statement to the police, which, if was true, would be certainly something that could result in a conviction. Uh, the Crown would assess that statement prior to proceeding. And I, I'm sure what came out today from what I've 
red again, uh, seems to have taken the, uh, the police and the Crown by a great deal of surprise as well. There's a piece in the Toronto Star today from uh, Bree Davies, who's with the vice president, or she is a vice president with the Criminal uh, Lawyers Association, and, and she makes the point that one of the reasons why we're having this conversation is that it, it stems from a myth. She calls it a pernicious myth, this notion that defense lawyers in, in a case like this are, are going to just go after the the accused that that's the path to victory just just uh tear the accused apart look for any kind of uh, contradiction and that's how you're going to win this notion then that that the defense is automatically going to zero in and, and rip apart the the accuser right and is is there something to that I, again i think what it comes down to is if you can show that a witness is unreliable or not telling the truth based on prior inconsistent statements. That's what any good lawyer does in cross-examining a witness. Is there part of the question here? And, and I mean, this is beyond the realm of criminal law. But part of the question here is how to support uh, women who do come forward in uh, in these cases, whether there's a conviction or not. Uh, do you feel that there's there's some inadequacy in the in the process there? I don't think there's some inadequacy in the process at all. Uh, as I say, there's been great changes in the law over probably the last 20 or 25 years to try to create a balance between the right of a victim to such things as their privacy interests. That's where the rape shield law came from. Uh, to their interests, for example, in therapeutic records or their records that the judge will have to be satisfied there's some relevance to before disclosing. So there's been a great progression in the law to, as best possible, protect the rights of an alleged victim, while at the same time jealously guarding the rights of an accused person to have a trial in which the allegations must be proven uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, what, what, what I see this case has kind of been coming in the media, it's just the wrong case for that sort of argument, because this isn't that sort of case. Right. Um, and this, is, this case is nothing unusual. There's no more uh, interest in this case to Mr. Gameshi and the alleged victims than there is to any other case that would be taking place in the Ontario Court of Justice in, in Calgary today. Mm-hmm. There's just nothing unusual about this case, except because of the celebrity status of Mr. Gabeshi and perhaps the salacious nature of the allegations has created this, you know, this media storm that I've never seen in a courtroom in Canada. Uh, and, and that's led to all these sort of discussions that really, when you assess what this case is about, are entirely irrelevant. The system is not broken. And if the system is broken, this case has nothing to do with any potential breakage in the system. Right. That's an important point. Really, this is really a he said, she said case that you can walk into any courthouse in this country and see on a daily basis. And it's taken a life of its own because, as I say, the, of who the accused is. And I think that's led to a great number of um, my fellow lawyers commenting uh, on a case in almost an irresponsible manner. I think it's led to the media writing these stories about, you know, we might have to consider changing the burden of proof on a on a sexual assault case. This isn't that type of case. Great point. Jonathan, thanks so much for the insight on this. Appreciate it. You're very, 
You're very welcome. All right. That's uh, Jonathan Rosenthal. He's a defense attorney based in Toronto. And he says, he says, the system might have flaws, but the, the system's not broken. And this is certainly not a case that would demonstrate that it is. Listen, we got to take a break here. We'll come back. More thoughts on this. We're going to open the phone lines up after 1132. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge, Newstalk 770, some open line time uh, between now and 12 o'clock. We're going to talk about the Zika virus uh, after 12 o'clock, but 974-8255. A lot of reaction on the Gomeshi trial. You know, again, we're just two days into the trial. If, if Gomeshi walks and if, you know, the public is convinced, having followed the trial, that he shouldn't have walked, well, then maybe that'll change the conversation at that point. I don't know that it means an overhaul of our justice system necessarily. I think another aspect of the story, by the way, Roger, and weigh in if, if you want, I, I think we should allow cameras in, in courts. I, I see no reason why there, there shouldn't be cameras. Now, maybe some people don't care about this, don't like the salacious aspect of it, don't want to watch it. Yeah, I, I oppose that idea. <clears throat> we shouldn't have cameras in courtrooms. It's kind of like voting on the cell phone. You should be able to vote online. Now, some things should require you to put out a bit more effort, burn a few more calories. There's no lock on the door in the court. You can go there. It's crowded. But you're allowed to go to the courts. The courts are open to the public, and there's a reason for that. It's so that you can observe them. Now, if it's that important to you to know what's going on with Tot Mom or OJ, or in this case, Gomeshi, go to Toronto. Go fly out there. There's reporters. They're in there. They're telling you the story. You know, and if, if you can't be present in the courtroom, you can read it in the paper. The next Why day. do we allow live tweets from the courthouse? But we don't allow cameras. Okay, I think that that is uh, a bit of a strange overlap too. But but I don't think that we need to have cameras in the courtroom to just make it so much simpler for people to uh, wipe their Cheeto stains on their shirts while they do uh, things that they're well, it should be they claim to be important. There's a reason why the public's allowed because the public has or deserves access to this. If I'm in Toronto. And I say, all right, well, you know what? I, I want to make sure that this trial is being conducted fairly. I have an interest in knowing what happens here. You can't go watch Gameshi's trial. You know why? Because there's only so many seats. Yeah, it's full, for sure. That's what it's I said. Full. It's, it's packed. So absolutely, people there. should have access to this. It's same with, uh, with, with question period. Well, now you're, I think you're making a better argument for stadium courts, which I approve of. <laughs> I, well, I don't think we need that at all. I think our courtrooms are just fine. Uh, but I absolutely think that, that the public should have access, and that, that should uh, should mean allowing cameras into the court. Now, see, I, I don't know. I just look at the democratic process, right, and, and all of these things, all these establishments that uh, that are set up uh, so that they can be so that we can hold them accountable. And apparently, that's just too difficult for us. Like, well, if it's not had, about it's not about difficulty. Well, sure it is. It's we, about it's about providing access. Why is the onus on the citizen? To be informed, why isn't the onus on the system to make sure that it's transparent? You know, to say that, well, look, you can go down to City Hall yourself and watch City Hall proceedings. Well, okay, I guess you can, but there's a reason why they put it on Channel 90 or whatever they do, so people can watch it. It's about providing that access, and and the courts are a part of it. You are going to put a lot of sketch artists out of work, man. Can you handle that? Pastel sales are going to go down. That's an oil product. That's true. Let's get Sam on here. He says cameras are needed in courtrooms. Hi, Sam. Hi, Roger. Yes, cameras absolutely should be allowed in the courtrooms. Uh, first of all, you can put the cameras up so they're non-obtrusive and you don't even know they're there. So it doesn't really impact what's happening inside the courtroom. But uh, having been a journalist and covered courtrooms, it's really hard to be accurate, especially if there's a lot of exchange going on and you're trying to write all that down on a piece of paper with a pen. You get quotes wrong, you misinformation, you just can't get it all because there's so much happening and you're 
using uh, equipment that's, you know, 400 years old as opposed to the modern technology that would be available to provide viewers and readers and listeners with accurate accounts of what actually happened in the courtroom. Can I amend my position a little bit, Rob? Because I realize what my opposition to court cameras in the courtrooms is. is I don't want to see court TV, and I don't want to see, like, uh, all the dramatic TV shows about courtrooms uh, as they're occurring. I, I, I insist that we wait a decade so that we can have Making a Murderer instead of just, like, Nancy Grace every night. I think that that's a problem. Well, I, but I, that's... I, I don't know that that's the fine line in Canadian media that keeps us from that. I think it's just the nature of Canadian media, the nature of uh, the Canadian consumer, that we don't want that kind of content. I don't think we have the kinds of trials that would lend themselves to that in the first place. I mean, uh, there, there are cameras allowed into the Supreme Court at times for, for various hearings. I, I don't see that getting out of hand. I don't see uh, you know Nancy Grace on, on CTV you know, showing all the footage from the arguments before the Supreme Court about assisted suicide. I think it's it's just about that transparency, and and if there are arguments against it, then then bring them forward. I just think that's where the onus needs to be that it should. If if the the system's going to deny us access, then it's the onus is on them to explain why, to justify that, not the other way around. I you know, and by the way, I could peel off a rant about um, using shorthand based on something Sam talked about, how you know, you're going to miss notes and all this stuff like that. Maybe we'll say that for a, a later day. But I, I just look at all of these things, that th- these accommodations that have been made in our systems to, to, to promote accountability, the fact that the courts are open to the public. Now, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, there's geographic uh, uh, issues, geographic concerns. It's very difficult for someone in Vancouver to go watch the Gomeshi trial in Toronto because they got to jump on an airplane to get there. And when they get there, there's not going to be very many seats available. But for everybody who wants to have like the vote on the internet or the vote from your mobile phone, I think that you're just really cheapening uh, uh, this 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 strong, sturdy pillar of our democracy, which is how elections run or which is how the courts operate. They shouldn't be TV shows, and I think that that we we risk turning them into spectacles that are just rife with criticism if we allow cameras in the courtroom. We allow those to be broadcast, those images to be broadcast willy nilly. I don't know. Well, I'm not sure what willy-nilly means. Why, why shouldn't they be broadcast? If John Gomeshi pulls uh, a Jack Nicholson and gets on the stand and is tricked into saying, you know, you can't handle the truth, and, and you're damn right I did, and that's the dramatic moment of the trial, and everybody's talking about it and tweeting about it and breaking news, and everyone's telling us what was said, and we've got a transcript of what was said, what's the argument against letting Canadians see that moment? Okay, here's my argument against it, is because if you allow those cameras to be presented, then you allow that content to be out there in the public, and presumably the Canadian public owns that content, right? And so that means any one of us, you, me, the CBC, whatever the opposite of the CBC is, we can spin those images and those courtroom uh, moments in any way that we see fit to promote a cause. And I think that that's a problem. That's what dangerous. Cause? Well, how is that different from taking a, a, a moment from, from question period? It's not. It's exactly the same as taking a moment from question period. But you just if you remove the context of the moment and put your own spin around it, you can get anybody to believe anything. And this is a society that's not interested in doing the research themselves or reading the dot, dot, dots in the quote or reading what happened on either side of that clip. This but is a generation that says... We get, we get says, the dot, dot, dot. But this is a generation that says, uh, I like uh, what that guy's telling me and not what that person's telling me because it makes me feel better. So therefore, this is my opinion on that. 
And so instead, we get, here's what actually happened. Here's what actually was said. We don't, though. I don't think we do. I think that if you were to watch, if you watch, um, uh, for an example, if you watch C-SPAN for 24 hours, you get what actually happened was actually said. But if you just tune into The Daily Show, you get Trevor Noah's take on it. Which or, is fine. Because it, because you like it, it makes you feel good. Well, I don't like it. I don't I don't care for his show at all. But he's certainly entitled to do that. And if you just want to take a, a clip from a trial and say, well, here's a dramatic moment. Here's a moment in this trial where the crown really screwed up, and here's where the crown should have been prepared, and they got blindsided. And here's that moment where you can see the crown prosecutor's face turn white and his jaw hit the ground, and they realize they screwed up big time. And here's that moment, and it's just a snippet of the trial, but it's got some value. And again, it's about that transparency. Let's take uh, Paul here. Hi, Paul. Thanks for the phone call. Hey, guys. Yeah, first off, I got to say uh, I'm, I'm I'm shocked and awe that I'm agreeing with the both of you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. Wait a minute. You both have good points, but, you know, you're, you're calling it a TV show, right? And we can't call it a TV show because we have to keep it in the context of just a, a video live feed on a certain channel of all of these cases that are going on that are, you know, important in Canada. It should always be broadcasted to the public so they can see what's happening. But nobody, no no commentary. I mean, zero commentary at all. Nobody <laughs> else's opinion. How could you have that, though, Paul? How could you possibly have that? On a channel running 24-7. Right, but then on the next channel, you're going to have Nancy Grace, right? You're going to have a Nancy Grace uh, uh, clone get up there and say, oh, look at this, look at this person's face. This person came from this neighborhood. Wait a second, you know, I, a I, I think Nancy Grace is despicable, but what's the, why are we invoking Nancy Grace? Because she's well, a questionable journalist, or is, is she doing demonstrable any, harm to the justice system? You could put it on Pori, or, or what is it? Mori Povich? Mori Povich, that's his name. You can put it on there. You can put it on anywhere, but that's down in the States. We're talking up here in Canada. I mean, just, you know, a, a, a live feed, zero commentary. This is the courtroom. This is what's going on. You can hear all of the evidence, all of the whole, the entire cha- the, the entire trial, but zero commentary, zero, period, none. All right, Paul. Allow, yeah. allow the public to see what's going on, to hold, you know, be able to, to later on hold accountable for the people that do screw up and say, you know, this was wrong or this was wrong or whatever, right? That seems too restrictive to me, but it's certainly doable because right now it's not allowed. If we were to change the rules to make it allowed, we could put any kinds of rules in place. We could say, okay, we're going to make that change, but there's only going to be one channel uh, for courtroom feeds, and it's just going to be uninterrupted, unedited, without commentary, coverage of the courts. But, of course, you've got courtrooms in every city right across the country covering all sorts of different trials i'm not sure what what would make it on on that channel but listen let's take a break here we'll come back more on this we got some other issues to talk about as well it's kincaid and breckenridge on news talk 770 hey 974-8255 you can also get us by text 770 uh, it's open phone but it really just turned into a conversation so far about whether or not we should have cameras in the courtrooms i thought this was a pretty thoughtful text rob um, someone uh, pointing out that, look, the court transcript is there. Cameras are awesome, but uh, uh, everyone might have the right to know, but that's what the trial transcript is for. That's the transparency in the system. Anything above that is sensationalism and doesn't serve the litigants who the legal system is there to serve. Well, but then yeah, that's an argument for keeping us out of the courtroom, too. I, I, I think we follow this notion that someone who goes to court to watch is a thoughtful, informed citizen who cares, and someone who tunes in on television is a couch potato looking for an entertaining TV show. 
I, and then I, I don't I don't think that's the case. Uh, nine seven four eight two five five. Let's see what uh, John's got to say. Hi, John. How you doing? Hey, how are you? <clears throat> Real good. Good, good. Sorry. First off, Roger, your little analogy there about the million dollar dream. <laughs> I almost choked on my apple. It was actually kind of funny. Hey, listen, uh, I, I occasionally just uh, <laughs> by reflex throw wrestling analogies in. No, that was awesome. Um, no, I agree with the lawyer there from Toronto there. Um, I, I don't think that there's really any big uh, issue, no, no real big issue in terms of the actual case where it's anything different from, you know, anything that happens day to day. I think a lot of it is, of course, the media sensationalizing it uh, like it's something different than, than, than what it is. Um, you know, I don't think that the rule of law should change. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the burden of proof should, should rest on the, on the, on the crown, right? And, uh, it's their job to prove the case. I mean, if you look back in our lifetime, I mean, you know, well, you know, if you go back 20, 30 years ago, uh, you know, it was very common, especially in the United States for, you know, groups of people to go into court one after the other and, you know, testify, say that, you know, this person did this or this person did that and they're guilty of this and guilty of that and they were thrown in jail. And it's only now with the advent of, you know, forensic evidence and whatnot and, and, and uh, of course, you know, just evidence in general and the advances in, in, in science that uh, a lot of these people are being, you know, exonerated and, and, and it's proven innocent. So, you know, I don't think that anything, anything should change. I think that, the, you know, the burden of proof, I mean, you're, you're talking about someone's freedom here. I mean, anybody can walk in and just be like, yeah, you know, Roger did this, Roger did that, and you're gone for 20 years. Right. You know what I mean? you, you got to prove it. And, you know, and the lawyer... Uh, the defense, it's not their job to be, to, you know, to sit down in their lap and be like, okay, Johnny, tell me what happened. No, I mean, you know, you're, you want to accuse someone and potentially lock this person away for the next 20 years of their life. Well, you got to prove a good case. You know, you got to prove that, you know, this person indeed did, did that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, let me jump in here, John, because I think you're right. And I don't think anybody would disagree with anything that you have to say to, to this point. But the problem that we have with these particular types of trials is that there's a difference between the crown and the complainants. And the complainants are really put through the ringer to the crown. It's just their job. Their job is to go out and speak for victims, uh, for alleged victims, and to try to carry the burden of proof to a conviction. But for the complainants, it's very difficult personally for them to go through these things. And all I'm saying is that it's OK that you feel bad for these people. It's all also okay that they get put through it because justice and truth is important. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and, I, and you know what, I, I agree with that. It's just uh, I'm just finding nowadays, you know, with uh, you know social media now, you're, you're proven you're, you're guilty, you know, based on the court of public opinion. And you know, it's it's unfortunate uh, for people that are innocent and people, of course, that are that have been violated, right? But I mean, um, at the end of the day, I, I don't think like you know, like the lawyer was saying, I don't think the system's broken. It's just a question of. You know, this is, you know, if you're going to accuse someone of something, these are the um, next, this is what could potentially happen, right? And it sounds to me as though the Crown wasn't prepared on a lot of different uh, fronts, you know, with with the evidence uh, that the that the defense had to present, either because they weren't informed or, or, or I don't know, or just general incompetence. But, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think the rule of law should change at all. I Good. think it's uh, perfectly fine. Good stuff, John. Thanks very much for the phone call. I really appreciate that. Yeah, the, I mean, it's 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 almost like you know you, you mentioned making a murderer, right? And when when you look at it that way, it's not the um, accused where there's necessarily the the sympathy. It's say the victim's family, right? And when you hear a defense attorney, you know, picking apart the testimony of a police officer, a crown prosecutor, and saying. That didn't happen. That person didn't kill so-and-so, right? You could argue that that's damaging to, to the victim's family and what they think happened, what they need to know happened, and the closure they need. 
Uh, and yeah, if, if an accused murderer is, is acquitted, then that's can be devastating to a family and not knowing what happened to the loved one. But again, it, it all comes down to that pursuit of the truth and that we need to hold, whether it's someone accused of murder, someone accused of fraud or someone accused of sexual assault, that 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 burden of proof needs to exist. And it's on the crown. You need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this happened. And we can't I don't think we can water that down. No, absolutely not. Uh, let's get to Mike on line three here. Hey, Mike, thanks for calling in. Hey, how's it going, guys? Yeah, real good. Hey, uh, yeah, we, um, I mean, I, I understand, and I'm not taking anything away from how difficult it must be for these women, but if we just, if we just say, okay, it's a rape case, the women, is, it's, they're obviously telling the truth. Every divorced guy or guy who's split up with a girl is going to be in jail. Uh, you know. Yeah, look, that's not the point, though. Um, look, there's a difference between every divorced guy is going to end up in jail and the Crown taking a case to court because they believe there's a reasonable, reasonable possibility of conviction. So if, if somebody comes to the cops with a false accusation of rape, and I'm not saying this is 100% of the time, but if somebody comes to the cops with a false accusation of rape or sexual assault, then they start to investigate. They don't just say, here's your trial date, show up and tell the story. They go and they gather evidence, and there's probably a a lot of times when they come back and they say the crown says there is no way based on what you're telling us that we can get a conviction they don't say nope you're lying it never happened but they will certainly say look we just don't have enough here to, to corroborate your story and present it to a court that would that would get a conviction well i can see that but um i mean by the same token um for example this person who was just cross-examined and they he pointed out inconsistencies in their testimony well I mean, otherwise that wouldn't be shown. It wouldn't be nobody would know that she sent this other email and that kind of thing. And and, and that's part of the evidence. I mean, just saying, okay, well, the cops looked at it. You, you know, we got to believe you. I don't. I don't go. Well, I don't the, it's, that. it's probably. It's more likely that the cops had no idea that that email was sent. They might have said, "Have you had any contact with him since then?" And she might have said, "No." I'm saying what she might have said. But I'll tell you something. Uh, Gian Gomeshi's lawyers would have probably uh, seized all of his computers and combed through those for every shred of evidence. And they don't have to give that to the Crown. So they opened up that file today and they said, "Why did you send him an email that said, let's talk? Your show looks great.'" And the Crown would probably sit there going, "What the hell?" Don't they have to show that in disclosure? No, nah, it's not a TV show, man. And they're the defense. The Crown has to show what their evidence is, but the defense well, doesn't. But you know what? By having a, having a, like, a, what do you call it, almost like a police state is not uncommon. I'm looking at Alberta, .05, you're guilty. You don't get to go in front of a jury of your peers. We used to, but then that got taken away from us. It's just another right we've lost. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's a, a bit of a different ball of wax right there. But thanks for the call, Mike. Much appreciated. All right. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back, uh, set up our final segment for you here today. Kincaid and Breckenridge. We're back after this.